Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Tom Russo, the managing member of Gardner, Russo & Gardner, a firm he joined in 1989 and where today he manages $11 billion in a long-only global value strategy. Tom buys the stock of global consumer businesses with great brands and holds them for a really long time. He looks for businesses with a capacity to reinvest cash flow and a capacity to suffer through short-term pain in order to achieve long-term gain. Tom started his investment career at the Sequoia Fund in New York, where he worked from 1984 to 1988. 
His first partnership started there, Sempervic Partners, has compounded at 14.6% a year for 33 years, besting the S&P 500 by 3.6% annually. Tom's a graduate of Dartmouth College and Stanford Business and Law Schools. He served on the Dean's Advisory Council for Stanford Law School, Dartmouth College's President's Leadership Council, and the Advisory Board for the Halbrun Center for Graham and Dot Investing at Columbia Business School, as well as on the boards of the Winston Churchill Foundation of the U.S., Facing History and Ourselves, and the Storm King Art Center. Our conversation covers how Tom created an investment strategy by personalizing early lessons he learned from Warren Buffett, the capacity to reinvest, the capacity to suffer, and what it takes to own a stock for decades. Tom's time horizon and fortitude as an investor parallels those of institutions with permanent capital. Listeners will get a fresh perspective on what it means to be a long-term investor. I hope you enjoy the show. And if you do, this week, why not reach out to your parents? If they're anything like my folks, they probably aren't that technologically inclined and might need to learn how to use the podcast app on their phone. Reach out to them, send your love, and show them how to use the app, and then tell them you might want to listen to Capital Allocators. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Tom Russo. Tom, thanks for joining me. Good morning. Good afternoon, I guess it is now. It is indeed. There's a story that I've heard you tell about how the spark got lit for you in becoming a value investor. Yes. Why don't you tell that story? Well, it really it goes back to Stanford Business School when I was a, a second-year student in the joint program with the law school. And Warren Buffett came to our investor seminar hosted by Professor Jack McDonald, who's played an important role at Stanford in keeping fresh the concept of active investing. Because with noted colleagues in the business school like William Sharp, the Sharp Ratio and a founder of Modern Portfolio Theory, it was very easy for the school to have abandoned the active pursuit of money management. And Professor McDonald kept it alive. And part of the way he kept it alive was to have access to Warren Buffett to visit every other year. And I happened to have the good fortune of being in a year when he was on campus. And so he really, he really came and provided me with some important principles. The first was that the government only gives you one break as an investor, which is tax deferral of unrealized gains. But in order to take advantage of that, you have to almost move from what was once Warren's earlier reputation as being a value investor, sort of a Graham and Dodd style of value investor, which was to look for 50 cent dollar bills. Because it's not enough to find a 50 cent dollar bill, Warren realized, if the dollar value didn't grow. Because to recognize that discount, you'd had to somehow close it. And your internal rate of return depended entirely on how quickly that happened. And so if it took 10 years, you'd make 7%. But if it took 20 years, you'd make 3.6%. The value wouldn't grow. Ultimately, if you did close the gap, you'd pay tax on the proceeds and move on and try to find something else. Around the time that we met with him, he was undergoing the transformation to better business investing, businesses that, that you can hold without paying taxes by virtue of the fact that they had reinvestment opportunities. He'd been surfacing and living through that message because it wasn't that much earlier that he had bought C's chocolate. And by the time we had him come to our class, C's was already proving itself to be a worthy investment. He probably bought it in 74 or something like that. I, I met him in 82 
And I suspect that C's business had just grown at a very happy rate. He was in charge of raising the price on a regular basis, and he realized that the business's virtue was to give someone a esteemable and, and hard-to-afford pack of chocolate as a gift, and Warren figured that he better raise the price regularly. And that whole notion of price increasing for a brand that had, the, in the perception of the consumer, no adequate substitute, which delivered price inelastic demand, allowing Warren to raise prices each year to show growth in operating income and hence the growth in the intrinsic value of the remaining shares without having to sell. And so he was on the cusp of that journey himself when we saw him in 1982, and he said, just make sure you take advantage of the benefit of not having to trigger taxes when you sell. And so there was, it was, there was something about that that resonated within you personally. Yes, yes. I, I sort of say it's part of my family background. I grew up in a a small farming town in Wisconsin named Janesville, Wisconsin. We also had something called the Parker Pen Company headquartered there. Well, that actually is consistent with my my professional story because I tend to invest in global consumer branded goods company, and Parker was one. The family was extremely well-heeled generationally. I like the notion of sort of having a portfolio of brands like Parker supporting a comfortable lifestyle. It's a farming community, so the notion that you plant something today and harvest it later is is very familiar with, with the environment in which I grew up. And so I consider myself, unlike most investors on Wall Street who are hunters, who try to find an event, a particularly slow-moving animal that they could come upon and, and take advantage of and then move on. We're very comfortable planting something that we might expect to harvest over decades. And so it resonated with me at some level. He also said you know, something that turned out to be extremely profound, which is you can't make a good deal with a bad person. Now, he just threw that out as he's, as he's comfortable doing, but it really got to the heart of agency costs and agency costs and alignment of interest and those things that really end up determining whether a good business turns out to be a good investment. There are lots of good businesses that manage poorly from the standpoint of shareholder interest, become poor investments. So how did you get from that concept to consumer brands? It was a big world. Yeah. You, know, you graduated school and, and went to work at the Sequoia Fund. But w- what was it in the investing that got to that particular area of the market? I'm intrigued, generally intrigued, by people's conduct. And, and so the conduct relative to brands is really a wonderful pursuit for an investor who, who likes to try to figure out the, the way people think. I mean, so you know, there's, this, there's this endless passion to express to people who you are by what you have, who you are by what you wear, who you are by what you drink, eat or smoke. And those, those tendencies are really deep-seated. And you know, as an investor, I'm, I found that I'd rather associate with really deep-seated trends because they tend to be more enduring. I've liked the notion of, of consumers' belief that if they're a loyal Jack Daniels drinker, that Jim Beam won't do. And so you know, Jim Beam, $3 off per bottle on a special promotion, won't dislodge a Jack Daniels drinker which gives Jack steadier demand so they can plan their production more wisely and their aging. It gives them pricing power because they can withstand that $3 promotion by their competitor who actually has something that probably looks and tastes very similar to what they sell, but not in the consumer's mind. 
especially not when they actually want to possess that badge. You will see people who have a tattoo Jack Daniels on their shirt, on their on their chest. They'll wear a Jack Daniels bandana, Jack Daniels belt buckle, and you go up to them and say something like, so do you like bourbon? He said, how do you know? Well, you know, they're walking <laughs> billboards. They, they tattoo themselves with the brand. That's pretty deep loyalty. And did you come to that in your very early days in the business? So you're coming out of business school and all of a sudden the light goes off for these consumer brands? Or was there a little bit of trial and error involved? You know, it's pretty early days. I, I did all sorts of kooky things as a, a young student, invested in hospital chains and all sorts of strange things, and they were fine. But very early on, I started to invest in something called Weedabix which is a product that my wife, who's British, loved. And, of course, no, nobody other than the British can stomach. But she was a complete loyal fan on that. And, you know, at some point early on, I, I resolved that the, the types of businesses that I could naturally file that, follow and that interested me were consumer brands because you can ask people what they think of them. You can watch them shop. You can try them yourselves to determine whether they're good or or it's unlike investing in a Qualcomm chip set. You know, I can't really know much about those given my interests, aptitudes, and background, but I can know a fair amount about what, what people esteem in, in, in the consumer realm. And so I often said that, you know, what I like to do as an investor is go into someone's kitchen and open up the cabinets and just see what is regularly there. And I most enjoy it when I ask somebody, why is that there? And they say they, they don't really know, it's just always there. That kind of legacy brand preference is worth a lot and it always has been. My wife happened to favor strange English diet, including Weetabix and Marmite and Branson pickles and a whole host of things <laughs> that you and I might pass over quite easily. But the British don't. And that's really all that matters is that you have a core consumer base. So that would have been an early investment. Over the years, it, it added consistent value, much like C's Chocolate. The marketplace sold its shares off during periods of time and then elevated them to high levels. And over a 25-year period of time, we owned the shares before selling them into a takeover by a private equity firm. I think they compounded 21%. Never had any debt, just just the steadfast growth and the profitability through reinvestment and cash buildup. And it worked fine, and it set me on the journey to find more of them. Yeah. So, so I've always loved there, – there are three kind of key tenets that I've heard you espouse. One is these consumer brands being part of a family-owned business. Yes. And then the two characteristics of these companies, the capacity to reinvest and the capacity to suffer. Why don't you take me through – each of those. Well, you know, Weedabix is a perfect example. So many of the uh, family, it was totally family controlled. I mean, it's, it was a process where I'd look at the back of the box of the cereal and it says Burton Latimer. United Kingdom, I checked under Bloomberg at the time or whatever source I used. And sure enough, it was public. But good luck finding it. You had to go to a Offex uh, exchange and it traded rarely. I probably was the only scale buyer for 20 years that I owned the shares, and, and we just kept hoovering them up. And so we did so typically at a very cheap price because most investors have no interest in, in, in risking their capital in a, in a family-controlled company when they have no way of controlling or in many instances knowing what the outcome will be. And they can't know whether the firm has an idiot uncle or a waste wasteful nephew that might end up inheriting the business and ruining it for the outsiders and eventually for themselves. The world, the world of history is full of examples of companies like that. 
So whether it's Weedabix or whether it was James Burroughs, which in the early 80s was the parent company of then single brand Beef Eaters Gen, well, that's a very odd business, but it was a public company that we could buy shares in. It obviously ended up being taken over by another company. Now it's, it sits in our portfolio again at Perno Ricard, a family controlled company that happens to be, you know, $20 billion market cap and we can, we can still invest in it. They still treat, treat the business just like James Burroughs management did back 30 years earlier. They have to invest behind the brand to, to support its appeal today in terms of price premium. And they have to invest to try to grow into markets where they introduce, ideally, the category by their early mover steps. If Warren's message, which is try to find businesses that that you don't have to trigger taxes on, is going to be adhered to, the businesses absolutely must grow. It's the only way you can get that discount. If it's not a 50-cent dollar bill, let's say it's a 80-cent dollar bill because businesses that grow are cost more. But if it's growing its intrinsic value over time through having the capacity to reinvest, we can rest assured that our value will be drawn up alongside of the intrinsic value. Um, uh, It's it's episodic. Sometimes it trails for quite a long period of time. Sometimes prices in the market race beyond the growth in intrinsic value. But ultimately, it's the ability to reinvest, the capacity of the businesses to reinvest that drives our, our success. Now, what's intriguing about that is the place that most companies fall short and they provide our portfolio companies with opportunities is they f- most public companies fall short based on their inability to spend the right amount. And I can fast forward to the present as an example. Philip Morris, four years ago, decided that they were going to take about half a billion dollars a year from their income statement and deploy it into efforts to research and develop a reduced risk product set so that they could come to their consumers, the the smokers that favored Marlboro with a product that didn't have associated smoke-related harm. Well, they committed to a half a billion dollars a year. They brought in the world's leading scientists, PhDs. They had had a lot of domain expertise about tobacco, paper, and, and smoking technology, but they committed to a level that none of their peers remotely attempted to commit. And I would allege that they didn't spend alongside of Philip Morris because they were more dependent upon meeting quarterly earnings required of them by Wall Street than did Philip Morris Care. For reasons of historical perspective, the firm had a shareholder base that was more tolerant of investing for the future than I think their competitors did. And as a result of those spending years, they they developed a product that once launched 18 months ago has captured nearly 25% of markets in Japan, the first market it launched to. They've converted 2 million cigarette smokers to users of one of their new products called Icos. It's a reduced risk product. It's a heat, not burn product. And most importantly, their competitors, as they try to respond to this first move by Fillmore's, have nothing up their sleeves with which to respond. Now they're hurrying about, they're throwing some things at it, but this was a complete package which was well thought out, fully developed and ready to go commercially. Phil Morris had the ability to suffer through those four years where they underreported their earnings by half a billion dollars a year. Yeah, which is in the public markets can be a, a brutally difficult thing. It's totally the case. But if you start by promising, you know, $4.30 a share 
and then you do everything to deliver it. If there's any efforts to think long-term and somewhat dynastically, like we like in family companies that think dynastically, if there's any attempt to do so, and you've committed to $4.25 of earnings per share, the moment something goes wrong, you're going to cut the vital spending that's forward-looking. And you know, it's the old story about the urgent trumps the strategic. You'll need to do something to generate those numbers. Strategically, you would prefer to invest for the future, but you will forego that strategic mission for the urgent current requirements of meeting numbers that really don't matter. Most of my investors are family families that once ran businesses. And so when I describe to them our goal, it's quite familiar to what they felt as owners of businesses. If you owned a business entirely by yourself, not just as a shareholder, you're not going to maximize reported income. That only means you'll pay more taxes. You're really concerned with growth and wealth. And that means that you spend up front, often in a painful way, to, to, to build capacities that the market will then fill up over time. And you'll do that again and again and again, and you'll you'll stake your, your next round of investments off of a bigger base because of the success of prior rounds. And it's that kind of cumulative construction of, of a business with multiple dimensions and geographies and products that a successful private company can build. And that's that's not allowed to public companies who end up falling prey to Wall Street's request of smooth quarterly earnings. Alongside of what you've said about taking advantage of the tax treatment of not selling, the capacity to reinvest, the capacity to suffer, there is an implication that you never sell. Right. What has your portfolio turnover been? It's low, obviously. It's quite low. And it's low even while when people ask me what's new in the portfolio, I often say most of what's in the portfolio is new because most of what's in the portfolio is vastly different than it was five years ago or, or will be five years from now because the companies are buying and selling all the time. And so we feel like we're less, less needful of doing that because our business is focused on the very long term, are making moves on our behalf all the time. This is a Heineken. Heineken Dutch Brewer, I visited in 1987. They were making 25% of their profits in the North American market. It was the peak of Heineken as an import. 5% of their revenues, it was far more profitable than the normal beer because of the pricing power that they enjoyed. And that was it. The rest of the business was kind of a collection of tired European markets and then a presence in Nigeria. That sort of defined Heineken. Today, the largest profit pool for Heineken is Mexico, which they bought through the market of FEMSA. The second most profitable market in the world for Heineken is Vietnam, which they grew greenfield that didn't even exist in their portfolio in 1994. The U.S. may be 3% of their profitability. Now, it may be more money than it was when I first bought it in 1986 because the profit streams have so vastly increased by virtue of the things that they've done in the meantime. But they've built a business where they have the capacity to reinvest so much more broadly because of the platforms that they've, the beachheads that they've conquered all around the world. They can very easily go from Singapore and take Tiger Beer into different markets throughout Asia now that they own Tiger Breweries. Well, they only bought that four years ago. When they bought it, they took terrible investor heat for paying the price that they paid relative to current prospects. And they did so armed with the belief that they would 
patiently develop a business that would have vast greater reach and breadth. And they, they have proved that vision to be true. And the family in each step of the way supported the management. And even as recently as two years ago, that support made a difference when they, when they stepped deeply into investing more in India and Brazil and it burdened their income sufficiently so that another company under a takeover, SAB Miller, felt it wise to offer to acquire Heineken at this moment when their profits sort of dipped because of reinvestment. The family who control it through voting shares simply said no. And they remain privately controlled, publicly held, and the shares have responded because the investment spending that was then underway has panned out. And so to put it in perspective, I know from conversations we've had, you talk about low turnover. Yes. But yes. Heineken, you've owned for 30 years? Yes. Yeah, I bought it first in the 87, 88. Nestle same for about the same, same time. thing. Philip Morris, Philip Morris, the same time. Philip Morris, the same time. So when, when we're talking about low turnover, we're talking about really not private equity, much longer term than private equity. So long, decades long holding periods. I want to ask you about two aspects of managing a portfolio like that. The first is position sizing. So let's assume for simplicity that you don't have flows coming in and out of your fund or your products, but we also know you don't really trade. You don't trade around the positions. So do you get concerned at times as stocks move around, sometimes multiples expand relative to others and contract, that you may not be optimizing the position sizing, even if you own the same names? Yes. You know, it's a very good question. The turnover you did ask specifically about, I think they ran numbers recently. And the sort of order of magnitude, 3%, 5%. Which is a 20 to 30-year holding period. In answer to your question, for instance, we don't rush to cash. When, when we feel like something's been fully realized in its recognition for its value. We believe that our investors hire us to invest the money, and, and we're comfortable with the businesses more so than cash. There's volatility that cash doesn't expose you to, but I think over time our businesses grow, and they grow to, uh, to the advantage of the intrinsic value of them per share basis and we participate. But it's very clear that the portfolio, though designed to be long-term minded, has a lot of rebalancing that takes place. And so perfect example was Philip Morris in 2012. It started the year at something close to 10% and ended the year over 13% as the position advanced 45% that year. Right, but not from, year. Your, not from your trading it, just owning no, it. No, that was, the, that was right. the market. And so, but it gave us an opportunity because at 14%, it was a bigger weight than I felt comfortable with needing at a lower value, at a lower discount valuation. So here we now have four percentage points that could be reallocated to two companies at the time. One was Richemont and one was Heineken, both of whom whose shares collapsed substantially over the course of that same period because of fears over Europe. So you will rebalance. I do rebalance. And then the question is, how much of a change in the portfolio do you need to see? So you're talking in this case about a 45% move in one stock and two stocks that underperformed. Yeah. Is that the type of what really big changes in stocks yeah, relative to each other? Yeah, but there's also smaller pruning and the, and the rest. But it's really it's really that rebalancing that does, I think, position the portfolio more athletically. The other question I want to ask is about opportunity cost. I have seen you spend years researching names that you don't own. And in that same moment in time, in that example where a Philip Morris will have risen and perhaps gets ahead of itself in the market, in, in your estimation, 
there must be times where you are looking intensely at a similar business or a different business that you love equally that's just cheaper. Your default is to do nothing. You've owned these names effectively forever, a full generation. How do you decide if it's wise for you to suffer if the opportunity cost is actually in your mind in that moment, you feel like, you know what, this is this other one's a better value. Maybe I should sell all of or most of my Philip Morris and buy this new name. How do you decide in that moment? Well, you know, we I certainly felt comfortable doing just that in 2008. So you did it ten oh, years absolutely. ago. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. But but that was a that was a recognition at the time that a host of businesses that were family controlled, call it H and R Block, call it International Speedway, Dr Pepper wasn't family controlled, but it was burdened by the same issue that confronted the other two companies. They lacked, even though that they had family control, they had they lacked the capacity to reinvest. Because in the case of H&R Block, they were tax prep, and that's U.S. tax business. They had nowhere else to go. They, they, they tried the mortgage business. Poor reinvestment oh, mortgage. Yep. They lost billions. And then you had the International Speedway, which is forcing reinvestment of tracks into places that should never go. The, the uh, penultimate was they tried to put a track in Staten Island on a toxic dump. And, you know, the thought of bringing in a... 200,000 people to watch a NASCAR race in Staten Island, given the normal traffic, just seemed ludicrous. Lacking normal reinvestment meant that those businesses, though they had family control and would likely be long-term minded, didn't pass the test on being able to reinvest. And so we sold them, all of them. I would say that this is an interesting side note. This stuff often has to do with what people spend, the questions that you're driving about portfolio activity and construction. It's very similar to the questions they address through behavioral finance. Big studies, and, and I would say I'm, I'm guilty as charged to commitment bias, overconfidence, anchoring. In terms of commitment bias, it's quite simple. Until I own a share of stock, I spend most of my time with most of the investments I look at thinking of reasons why not to own it. At the same time, as I read about the companies more and study more about the business we own, I feel quite comfortable that I'm probably reading selectively for reasons to continue on it. This is commitment bias. I I don't own something and I do own something. And and the lens through which you see things is shaped by those biases. And that is something I'm guilty of. I'm I'm quite certain of that. Certainly, I'm guilty of overconfidence and and, uh, anchoring. Now, mind you, there are gospels, books, tomes written about about behavioral finance and how it should shape, the awareness should shape better conduct and all the rest. I don't think it's worked for me so far in terms of re- redoing my conduct. But at the same time, I do find that, the, that, that much of that investigation becomes less relevant the longer your, your time horizon is. So all of the pitfalls of behavioral finance and, and, and the study about why people make predictable but irrational decisions when it comes to equities, so much has to do with equities in a relatively near term. And then over a relatively longer term, if you're right on the business, being anchored, having commitment bias is what allows you to sort of withstand the noise of Wall Street. There's an interesting parallel, both in what Warren Buffett does and you know my first mentor, Dave Swenson, where both have talked at times about a systematic bias to hold on. And maybe you hear Warren talk about Dexter Shoe Company all the time. Maybe there's a mistake and he holds on anyway. Now, in both of their cases, there's a recursive benefit. So if you're Warren, 
and the seller of a business knows you will not sell. Yes. Yeah. You're yeah. a preferred buyer. If yeah. you're David, you have relationships with managers and you hold on, that is preferable for the next great manager that comes across. In your case, it's not necessarily the case. Right? You're not taking control positions. No. I, I say we get the benefit, I do believe, of, of insider insights, which are helpful in creating kind of the framework around which we review and we and we analyze the businesses that we own. They're not insider information because that's obviously privileged. But, you know, the sorts of questions about succession, the questions about capacity to invest, which are long-term dated questions in the first place, are areas that I think we probably have richer conversations with our portfolio company management than most do because we're we're part of that long-term process. We can give, in certain instances, the management of those companies examples with which they can discuss with other investors of people who have long-minded relationships with the sizes. And they'll, they have the ability to say, well, this is, this is the sort of business that some have held for a very long time. And, and, and that may give them some cover when dealing with other investors about the wisdom of, of thinking long-term relative to their position because it's been done by some people. Now, we have lots of company who've been in those positions for a very long time. We're not, you're not singular on this issue. And I think having a portfolio of them for the managements help them express the wisdom that might be implicit in stretching out investment horizons just a little bit. Right. There's another leg on the stool that's required for you to make this work, which is effectively the behavior of your investors, or and sometimes the, the capacity of your investors to yes, suffer. Yes, very much and so. And I think there's probably two periods that are notable uh, in your history. The first, of course, is the years leading up to 1999, which yeah. was just a bloodbath for value investors. And Jeremy Grantham notoriously has talked about how they were preaching value, preaching value, preaching value. They're losing assets, losing assets, losing assets. And at their sort of nadir of assets, when the business felt in jeopardy, the tide turned and it sort of saved their business yes. and they've grown. What happened to your investor base in that same period of time? Yeah, I, you know, the, the interesting thing is the manager, the manager of portfolios has to have the capacity to suffer, just like the manager of our companies. As, as a money manager, I tell investors at the start, this is like you ran your family company. You know, This is designed to look for the long-term gains and we'll have periods of short-term pain. That's, so that's one thing. You can tell that all you want, but living through, it's a different thing. How do I think about living through it? Well, one thing is most of our investors are taxable. So they end up with embedded unrealized gains. And at the end of the day, as they, as they start to lose altitude, I will say, yes, we're happy to do this, but I, you understand we have a lot of embedded gains, you'll trigger the gains. Sometimes that's a line of defense, often not. And then the last thing is, what I typically ask of my investors is that I end up managing a small portion of a large, broad team of equity investors. And those equity investors come to work every day after the advisors to those taxable family groups uh, have positioned them with cash and with bonds and with alternative investments sufficient to ensure them that they're always going to be rich regardless of what these equity markets do for them. And that way they have a mindset of patience relative to equities where, where they lose that mindset of patience. If I'm, for example, in 1999, I was down 2% and the, the Dow and the S&P were both up mid-20s. That's a big, a big miss, let's just say. I 
was lucky enough that most of the investors for whom I worked abided me with my my requests of them that I represent a modest portion of their funds so I don't have to burden all of my investors with their emotions because investors are emotional and I think the worst emotions arise in the most risky bull markets when people fear missing out. Yeah, well, that's and that's certainly true today. I mean, the, the, the next period of struggles for active management have been the last few. Yes, where this, oh, absolutely. The passive indexing trend, yep. active managers, including Warren, have significantly underperformed. And so what's happening today with your investor base? Now you've had a longer tenure. Have they pretty much stood their ground and, and dealt with this capacity to suffer? Generally, yes. And what, I mean, the real, the real testing moment, I suspect, uh, and again, we didn't, we didn't have a mass exodus or any kind of a particularly disruption would have been November 2016. I mean, if you think about it, we had had three years in a row where the really surging U.S. dollar had, tr- through translation effects, uh, robbed us of 6% of performance for almost, for two years in a row, 2014 and 15, slightly less than 16. And the move from international holdings broadly to um, to the S&P 500 in aggregate meant that international shares poorly performed. We had mid-single-digit returns for three years in a row. And it culminated with last year when international shares, Heineken and Nestle Unilever, dropped 20% in the last quarter as a result of the election and the sort of reaction through the Trump bump to sell into the U.S., to go into the U.S. Now, What's intriguing is that almost almost to cue at the start of this year, the the pendulum reversed, and so the portfolio right out of the gate last uh, first quarter was up ten percent, and the market was was very much reassessing more favorably both the positive outlook for international companies and the and the bearish outlook for the U.S. dollar. The pressure to keep performing year in and year out um, would really would really disrupt long-term mining investment approach if I felt like I had so much of a given family's money that they emotionally could not afford not to make money at the peak rate every quarter. You know, there's this illusion that you can be in the top decile every episode. And it's just, if you're a long-term investor, there are going to be times when you're out of favor. I'm curious how you think about the the structure of what you do compared to, as you talked about, a broader diversified pool. So, for example, your alma maters, Dartmouth and Stanford, have widely diversified portfolios and multiple asset classes. You own a bunch of businesses. Those businesses are globally diversified. They have enduring brands. How do you think about those trade-offs. And we've talked about it in terms of effectively volatility, the, the ability to suffer if your approach is going to be more volatile, it shouldn't necessarily be all of someone's portfolio. But is one better than the other? I mean, the, the, for a long time, you've compounded at very high rates yes. of return. There are others who have taken a different approach. Well, I think, I mean, as I started, there's two things that we start with basic principles, a la Warren Buffett at my business school class. One, taxation, and two, the caliber of individuals. And I would say that the turnover that's in search of more action, let's just call it, comes with a very high price tag. And so I would still wish to find businesses that had long and enduring 
durable competitive moats, which can be widened through regular reinvestment and with bounty that grows because of expansion through that reinvestment. So anyways. Um, have you have you sat on any investment committees? Of- I do, I do. And it's a horrible thing to do, I must for say. For you. Of course. <laughs> Why did you underperform this quarter? What's going on? How dare you? It's it's a whole different skill set because I'm managing not only that those allocations and those those investments and the breadth across different continuum, but I have to also then manage the committee members, obviously, who whose whose participation you you solicit and you need, and that's a different process. So the answer is yes, and it's eye opening. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious about your decision making process relative to someone we've talked about. So. The approach of investing you take requires a certain temperament, certainly a, a, an experience and knowledge base that grows and compounds over time, as we've talked about, a certain type of client base that's willing to stand by you. And there's probably only a subset of companies that you've found, there's maybe 20, that, that you enjoy and have owned for a long time. Warren Buffett and Berkshire don't own a lot of the same names you do. Why do you think that is? Well, one thing is the international. I mean, he he clearly finds more than enough to keep himself busy, as he said, in the U.S. He said this, so I, I just ape his own comments. He doesn't feel that he has as strong a way of quickly assessing the caliber of the management in foreign markets as he does in the U.S., where he knows if they were Notre Dame you know, or if they graduated from Washington or George Washington or Dartmouth or someplace else, says something to him. He he he. It's sort of five questions you can kind of figure out what what you need to know about someone in the, in the U.S. and you just can't begin to get that from in the international markets. At least he doesn't feel so. I have felt more comfortable. I think extremely highly of the Heineken family. I think what they stand for is something that is knowable. It's enduring, and I, and so I'm more comfortable have been since the start with the international exposure. I think we've added value by being willing to move there earlier on. I mean, he he recognizes it when he describes his continued joy about the exposure he gets through Coca-Cola, for example, in, in consumption growth worldwide, but but prefers not to own those companies internationally. And I, I actually prefer to own those. And, and so that's one big difference. He's had historically a much more industrial orientation, certainly in those privately held companies, the Marmon Group companies, and, and so many of the businesses that he's owned. And we have a almost 13% holding in Berkshire. And I love all those exposures, but they're businesses that I probably won't find my way to directly. All this, you know, at some point, we managed over $11 billion. And I may have to start to migrate away and look for some, uh, some uh, fields to invest in that are are either akin to or possibly just slightly distant from where we spent most of our time historically. Yeah. So I want to talk about a live case study of, of a name you and Warren have owned in common, which yes. is Wells Fargo. Yeah. A year ago, yeah. a year and a half ago, we, we probably would be sitting here and talk about how Wells Fargo and the brand just fit yeah. so perfectly into your model of this pristine, high integrity, trusted bankers. That's obviously changed a lot in, in what's happened over the last year and the notion of the brand is in jeopardy. You have stayed in the stock. Why don't you talk a little bit about what you were thinking in those days, months, when the news was coming out, and was that jeopardizing your core thesis? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing I was thinking was, I was thinking, what the hell was the CEO and, 
and share thinking when they didn't respond more forcefully to something that could impact the economic goodwill that was at the core of the franchise because what was at risk really was was the sense of their fair play and their relationship with their customers as a place that can make their lives better. And that's that really was what is at play. And this, this stuff surfaces periodically across all companies and you just have to be immensely fast reacting. And they weren't. And so that was, a, that was an interesting component to this. And the reason they weren't is, you know, it's kind of standard lawyerly talk. You know, I think the first, the first instant raised the question, and it, probably the question was, do we need to say anything about this? And the lawyerly answer is, no, it's not material. Why not? Because it's less than 3% of people. It's less than 3% of income. It's less than, less than. Therefore, the test says no. The answer was yes, you have to admit and then correct immediately rather than to allow the same thing to exist over the ensuing four years without an adequate response, only to find yourself at that point then burdened by a reaction that was much more fierce because of its untreated nature for so long. So that was, first thought was, what the heck were you thinking about? But then for me, it was what is kind of the knowable level of damage because there's a lot of rhetoric swirling around. And that number is really small, really small. I mean, unlike the $15 billion judgments that JP Morgan and Bank of America have had to pay, where you're dealing with the whole, the whole crisis of subprime mortgages, we're dealing here with, with accounts that were opened up, never activated, but may have triggered some cancellation fees that, that, that ought to be reimbursed. That's a couple million dollars. And so the scope of direct damage seemed manageable and a you know a one trillion dollar asset bank the fear about the goodwill and the potential competitive onslaught that it might it might ensue if lost was moderate to my way of thinking by virtue of the fact that the places to which the clients could turn have already shown themselves to have had even worse deficiencies from the standpoint of proper behavior whether it was Citibank, J.P. Morgan, or Bank of America, each of whom had far greater economic consequences to their conduct, and all of which ended up leaving the, the Wells consumer of services somewhat head-scratching with the question, where do I go instead? Right Across the street wasn't a lot better, and we haven't seen evidence of, of the ability for someone to come into this void with a new bank with a happy face and a friendly promise that could surface. So I felt that their threat to their franchise based on, on client turnover because of goodwill was somewhat moderated by virtue of the fact that the places to which they naturally go, the banks across the street from them, suffered their own ill will. That was sort of comforting. And does that reputational damage, does that change your outlook for their capacity to reinvest? Well, that's a very interesting question because their capacity to reinvest had already been fairly limited by virtue of the fact that they now exceed 11% of the deposit base in North America, and they can't buy new assets in the banking industry, new banks or new assets, because of the 10% threshold, above which you cannot go through acquisition or purchase. So they're already up against that. Does that, in your portfolio construction, mean that at a certain point in time, uh, 2008 happens again, that that's a candidate to be replaced be. by something Could that be. it's a, it's 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 more closely aligned with the cigarette socks. I mean, clearly Wells earns a tremendous amount. They will they will make amends financially. They'll have to pay out some more money. Obviously, 
but the uh, payout is going to increase massively to both share buyback and to dividends because they know now that they cannot redeploy capital given their size. And they don't show an interest in adjacent businesses, you know, insurance or deeper investment banking. I don't think they'll buy Goldman, you know, all that kind of stuff, which would otherwise worry me. I don't think that'll happen. International, I think they'll be fairly close to home, though it's possible that they may find a retail bank, purely retail, like their real businesses, to grow into, and then they could they could redeploy capital. But generally speaking, that capital is going to go back to owners. And it serves a role much like the tobacco companies where you're not going to get a lot of growth, but you'll get cash flow, yield, and then buy back to drive the intrinsic value up whenever it's underpriced. It's all right. It'll be a, a decent component to the overall return. The yield alone will, will play an important role. The buybacks will help a lot. The only thing now I'm really personally concerned and focused on is just the general decline in the nature of the banking business based on requirements for capital, sure. based on suggestions by the Department of Labor about burdens regarding fiduciary duty. There's some developments. There's a enough regulatory hostility that I think we're we're required to stay closer to Wells. And for that reason, as it's moved up, we've been using it as a source of cash to make other investments. As it pops up, we we have been selling it. So we have cash to go off and do other things, just recognizing that it probably doesn't have the reinvestment rate to warrant the higher higher position sizing. So I want to ask you something that I've experienced alongside of you in the past that is part and parcel to your research process, which is the, uh, the first is the ability to listen. A number of times we've had conversations over the years, and within a week, I get back a, a note from you that encapsulates things I had forgotten about. And yet, you're not writing anything down. We're just having a conversation. Can you talk a little bit about listening? and how you've developed that skill and how you deploy it and what you do. I think the trick is to listen listen for the things that surprise you. In most of what I hear, I'm, I'm not particularly provoked or excited. But every once in a while you hear something. I was just with, a, with an organization yesterday that's stumbling very badly. And I have a sense that part of it is is a function of the uh, the infrastructure of the management and the ill-working nature of people in, in the senior-most roles and, and the poss- very serious possibility of compromised decision-making. You know, a person oversees another person, oversees another person, nothing gets done, and the outcome is, is subpar. And I was listening to the person describe the head of the, the geography that is surfacing the most trouble, and uh, the person is quite accomplished, and the the man I was speaking with described him as being part of the effort, but in fact, he should be the old effort, and that the decisions were really made by his superior. He's a very talented person. There's absolutely no reason why his superior should have any authority over the daily operations of a division run by one of the, the, the best talents there. And I, I really, I was stunned to hear him say, and of course, he's making all the decisions. I, I, I said, Repeat that. Tell me what you really meant to say. What, what do you mean by that? That, to me, was, was extraordinary to hear that expression. Now, we talked a little bit farther. Before you know it, I think he had a sense of 
the fact that he had said something, uh, and he backpacked really. He backpedaled very quickly. And then he said, oh, no, this person calls all the shots. He is the head of that, that important region. Uh, just make sure you understand that, right? I never say anything else, right? And, of course, he did say something else. And we got there through a series of questions that kept poking around the same subject, and that came out. Well, that's, that to me was, was valuable information. And uh, uh, the rest of the stuff you know, was, was more rhetoric. But when he, when he sort of described the way that, they had, that, that he saw the internal operations, it, it confirmed my worst fear. Yeah. And how about in your day-to-day interactions? So we're having a conversation, and a few days go by, and I get one of these now among some of my friends notorious <laughs> emails with a PDF attachment from Tom Russo, and and there's always a recollection of something in an ordinary conversation. Not how does that come about? Well, you know, I, I end up I take more notes than you suggest. I mean, that's clearly it. I'm I'm often just scribbling something down, and then I I struggle myself to read what I wrote. <laughs> but you know, it is I use those moments to in effect create a conversation that I can look back on. And so if, I, if I'm putting something in paper, it's because I want to make sure I've got it stored. I have access to those, and they form part of my memos to myself almost. They happen to be shared because they involved you in, in the case that you described. But at the same time, they're really my, leg, my, my sort of legacy of, of, of important observations that I'd like to make sure are saved. Other people do it through, you know, sort of their internal files, and I sort of extend it a little bit by working letters around it and thanking you for the time you spent and, and, uh, and sharing those thoughts again together. So I'd like to turn to a few closing questions, move away from investing a little bit. What advice would you give someone early in their career? It's amazing how the advice that someone gave me in my career, which is early, which is the most important uh, force of nature is the force of compound interest. And compounding in general is the compounding of goodwill. A person who taught organizational behavior at the business school I went to said to to our class as we finished, he said, just make sure you all understand that your careers are very long and you'll see some people come out of the gate really fast and and you'll want to make sure you keep up with them and do certain things. And it's a very long process and, and you won't really know about lasting added value for decades. And that really was important. And I think it's really important for people to know. I was with someone recently in the investment business and, you know, he had probably seven positions in the first 10 years of his career. And he was, he, 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 he confessed, he said, you know, I, I was too impatient, you know. And, and I remember the refrain I heard from this person was fairly frequently repeated. I, I moved into this position and the person just above me was only a couple years older. He wasn't going anywhere. So I realized I needed to go someplace else. And, and to have that happen sort of seven times in 10 years, well, most people are still moving along their own careers. And, and to think that you knew, that he felt he knew so quickly that he wouldn't have any room to advance was just putting an enormous strain on his career arc and, and a costly one. He's a very talented investor, quite clearly from, from what, what he was able to accomplish despite that unsettled feeling about trusting the, the power of that compound. What, what he failed to realize is the people who are just a little bit older than him have a very high probability of leaving. Something comes along, you know, and so 
the just relying a little bit more on on the virtue of staying in something much like i do with stocks you know stuff happens but that's the first thing the second thing is just try to find business that you find rewarding personally and and uh, and uh, it'll make your job much easier what word or phrase did your mother or father repeat to you over and over again no, has. Tom. <laughs> Fortunately, in my case, well exercised and frequently used. So I'd say I'd say something to the effect of lasting uh, measures. You know, I think, I think for me at least, it would be the result of growing up in a family with five siblings, quite close in age. Both my parents uh, were extremely mindful of the the need to sort of provide a flat environment for expectations, praise, and all the rest. A sense of of connectedness and and of being a together family rather than a family of of rivals really has lasted our family for for fifty, sixty, now seventy years. And it was the right it was the right message in the family. You can imagine a contrary case which would be to set five cosmic forces independently on their own way to try to operate independently against each other's interests and all the rest. And, and it would have been a far different environment. So I think in our case, it was just sort of respect for the other person. Someone reminded me recently that my, my, uh, my mother's expression was, you can never say shut up. I mean, for some reason, it was just it's a notion of respect. That's important. What is your favorite thing to do that is a complete waste of time? I, you know, it's just prolifically, prolifically promiscuous reading. You know, and, and I mean, it is literally sitting with a stack of, I don't know, 50 magazines and newspapers and all the rest, and just tearing through it. At the, you cannot imagine how seemingly little value you can extract from doing that <laughs> and how much time it can consume. It is, just, it is just asymptotic, the amount of time you can sacrifice that way. And it's, for me, sheer pleasure because of the serendipitous nature of what you come upon through readings that are, you know, if you think of a stack of Business Week, Barron's, Fortune Magazine, The Economist, and, and think about over, it's sort of randomly, randomly stacked over four months worth of back reading. There's a little I think is more fun than just saying, oh, it's a complete perversion for where you should spend your time. The ideal answer should be a great novel by a master author on a beach with a rum drink next to you and totally focused on a great story <laughs> at hand. I mean, that's that's, so, so that's what, what, and what should would happen. That, what would that novel be? What's your favorite book? might be Les Mis. Great book. Uh, and I'm, I cite that amongst the great books because it's one that I often see on re- replay of the, of, of the Broadway interpretation of it. its powerful movie and a great book. If you started your career over today, money was no object, and you couldn't be an investor, what would you like to do? It's a very good question because, you know, we face that question every day because you can always do something else. And so uh, that, that is already a very profound question. I suspect it could be one of two things. I mean, Charlie Munger has this part of his, his personality that he describes as, as resulting from the kind of paint-drying nature of long-term investing, which is he's found an outlet in building things. And so 
I, you know, I've enjoyed the the building of many different uh, structures, the additions, changes to our homes, and all the rest. And that's some place I could spend time uh, productively. It's the it's the vision thing that you have to get right. And then it's the execution thing that delivers on that vision. And I find that to be a rewarding process. I don't know that that would be the thing I would do to my exclusion. But if I stopped investing in common stocks, but still felt a need to be commercial, that's where I direct my efforts, I think, commercially. I suspect, though, at this stage of the going, I would probably just direct my efforts away from commercial pursuits into something that's more along the lines of a give back than a make more. That's really where I think I would end up. What do you know now that you wish you knew 10 years ago? It has to do with, with my reaction to the present world we live in. You know, I wish I had a, a stronger model that would have allowed me to understand just how our society has evolved to the world that we now confront in a way that I, if I had known where I was going to end up today, I may have been more forceful in applying myself away from business to doing things that help help the society, the world more broadly, to um, create more of a common view of, of shared destinies within these United States than we seem to have found ourselves left with 10 years later. I'm quite quite struck by how fractious this country has become. And if there were something I could have known along the way that might have that might have averted the outcomes that we now confront. I would have enjoyed the chance to reflect on that, but I, that would be that's that's something that I'm left scratching my head over, and hence probably one thing I should have been able to direct more thought to earlier. So it's your waning days. You're in your late nineties, maybe hundred, hundred ten years old. Value investors so tend to live a long time. Uh, <laughs> yes. Sitting in your rocking chair, what advice would you give yourself today, looking back on your life? It's clearly keep time for the people who matter and and make sure you know who the people are who matter and make sure that you you keep time for them terrific tom thank you so much for taking the time thank you the first 99 percent of the conversation was a lot easier than the last four questions <laughs> i can assure you it's but power thank of compounding you. yes thank you so much for the chance to visit i thoroughly enjoyed it Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you've liked what you've heard, please write a review on iTunes or Google Play to help others find out about the show. Have a good one and see you next time. 